0: to show you. In June 1972, a woman appeared in Cedar Cyanide Hospital in nothing but a white, blood-covered gown. Now this in and of itself should not have been too surprising, as people often have accidents nearby, and come to the nearest hospital for help. But there were two things that caused people who saw her to vomit and flee in terror. The first was that she wasn't exactly human. She resembled something close to a mannequin, but had the extreme dexterity and fluidity of a normal human being. Her face was as flawless as a mannequin's, though, devoid of eyebrows and smeared in makeup. There was also a kitten clamped in her jaw, so unnaturally tight that no teeth could be seen, and the blood was still squirting out over her gown and onto the floor. She then pulled it out of her mouth, tossed it aside, and collapsed. From the moment she stepped through the entrance to when she was taken to the hospital room and cleaned up before being prepped for sedation, she was completely calm, expressionless and motionless. The doctors thought it best to restrain her until the authorities could arrive and she did not protest. They were unable to get any kind of response from her and most staff members felt way too uncomfortable to look directly at her face for more than a few seconds. But the second that staff tried to sedate her, she fought back with extreme force. Two members of the staff had to hold her down as her body rose up on the bed with the same blank expression. She turned her emotionless eyes toward the male doctor and did something unusual. She smiled. As she did, the female doctor screamed and let go out of shock. In the woman's mouth, there were not human teeth, but long, sharp spikes. They were too long for her mouth to close fully without causing damage. The male doctor stared back at her for a long moment before asking, What the hell are you? She cracked her neck down to her shoulders to observe him, still smiling. There was a long pause. The security had been alerted and could be heard coming down the hallway. As she heard them approach, she darted forward, sinking her teeth into the front of his throat and ripping out his jugular, and then letting him fall to the floor, gasping for air as he choked on his own blood. She stood up and leaned over him, her face coming dangerously close to his as the life faded from his eyes. She leaned in closer and whispered, I am God." The doctor's eyes filled with fear as he watched her calmly walk away to greet the security men. His last ever sight would be watching her feast on them, one by one. The female doctor who survived the incident named her the Expressionless. There was never a sighting of her again. Welcome to the Sirens of Scream, the geek podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. This week is just going to be me, Sierra, because we are taking a little time off for the holidays, but we wanted to give you something to tide you over. Um, In our next episode, we're planning on uh, talking about Channel Zero, which is a sci-fi original series, um, which is inspired by creepypasta stories. So we watched their second season called No End House, and we're going to be talking about that next time. Um, But just to prepare you for that episode, since we're going to be talking a lot about how the internet has changed um, urban legends and, uh, how we tell stories and especially horror stories, um, I wanted to tell you some of the stories that we're going to be talking about during that episode so that we're all on the same page. Um, that one that I just read is called The Expressionless, um, and if you haven't heard it before, you super need to go and look at the image that's, uh, associated with it. It is terrifying, um, uh, yeah, the specialist is one that has stuck with me just because of that picture alone. So this next story is actually just a portion of a longer story called The Pill Mills of Florida. Um, and I picked this one because I just recently read it and I was thinking that it could lend itself well to being a future season of this Channel Zero show. Um, the way that the show works is that uh, much like American Horror Story, every season is kind of its own standalone story, but of course they have similar themes and it's obviously a horror genre um, and kind of dipping into sci-fi and stuff like that. Um, and so this one, I picked out this section because I think that it'll give you a really good idea about what the story covers and the kind of tone uh, that, it, that it has um, without actually giving away too much of the story and then there's no spoilers in it. So, Here we go. This is, um, from part three called Alive and Well and Living in Hell. I was mainly stunned for about a week after that. Once and again, a giant mute bruiser in green and purple handed me a bag with drugs and money in it and said to let them know when I felt good enough to come back. Dave did not respond to my texts during this time, and Debbie just told me to rest up and tell her when I could come back in because she didn't want to talk about this over the phone. I began to rack my mind for experiences of situations that I could at least google. It was difficult to tell which parts were just junky mythologies, and which came from people reacting to something genuinely weird, whether they had their facts straight or not. Everyone used to say that the area that is now Bryant Park and the of Lake Worth was deeply haunted. Bryant Park is an increasingly beautiful suburban park on the intercoastal Highway. It borders Lake Worth, a formerly poor neighborhood that still has really bad parts and rough roads, but has been increasing in value thanks to the older homes which are easy to renovate than thanks to concrete block construction. It's a beautiful old neighborhood with a distinct style formed out of the blocky homes and frequent use of pastel colors. It used to be a great place for the homeless to crash, as Lake Worth used to be a lot cheaper. It still is, but not as much. If you were out at the park at night, you had to be careful, because things that looked like people would occasionally come out of the water in the summer, and for some reason only in the summer, turn and face the seawall that lined the walkway with their backs to the park and wait for people to get close to them. When somebody did, they would see something that looked almost human, but with a giant mouth filled with large, blunt teeth, oddly shaped eyes, stringy wet hair and slimy pale skin. There had been plenty of missing homeless from the area and every now and again underneath the lake worth bridge which crosses the gulf stream hotel and goes over the park would be sealed off by police who had presumably found something there it was absolutely agreed upon that the gulf stream hotel had a man living in it despite being boarded up for who knows how long he would stare angrily down at passersby, and if he tried to get his attention or willingly made eye contact with him he would motion for you to come up to him I've never met anyone who went past the first flight of stairs and went any further, though, as that building was old and was built with the old Floridian rule of air conditioning. Make it as drafty as possible, and preferably out of wood even in places where it shouldn't be. This made it creaky, and therefore very creepy. This meant that the wind screamed through the building, but I remember one guy named Andy, who is now a physician, who told us that it sounded like a person whistling something. I remember this girl I went to John Leonard with, Megan Water. She was this adorable long-haired brunette who was into Radiohead and who I used to score weed from. Anyway, she started dating some older guy on the island. I remember this because the cops came around asking people on her phone and in her text history if anyone knew his name or what he looked like. The top part of her head, missing the bottom jaw, had been found hanging from her hair from a street light near Dentura which was a largely desolate street at the time near Clematis Boulevard. And Clematis is this tiny, pathetic strip of ever-changing clubs and restaurants across the water from the island. So I heard that Megan Water tried to break up with her older creep boyfriend, and was really afraid because he wasn't who he said he was. One of the worst rumors was that he demanded that she marry him so that they could move away together, and when she said no, something began stalking her. Her friend said that she was really afraid in the days before her death. I also remember John Parks. He was the stupid junkie who was into theater and a lot of drama. I never liked him that much, so I didn't really pay attention when he was killed in a hit and run near the breakers. But then later on they found pieces of him in the Manlipan, which is about a 20 minute drive away. And those pieces were found months after he was killed. Some of the stories about how they died were pretty horrific, and I thought that they were just cruel high school bullshit at the time. Like, I remember hearing that John Parks had been screaming and trying to get someone's help on the night that he died, waving at people from across the Royal Palm Way from that path that leads to the Flanger Museum. But then when they caught up to him, it was somebody else who claimed that they hadn't seen a thing. And then some of the stories didn't even need a death for the origin. Like, it was widely understood when I was growing up that that schoolhouse I would now be avoiding for the rest of my life was in some way haunted. I had never really paid attention to that, but I remember Stimpy, who was this kid from high school and who was a complete idiot, He was this basket case and obsessed with occult stuff, in that order, unfortunately, he had insisted that not only was the place deeply haunted, but that Hope Sound had even worse things. Weird ghosts who wore insanely colored masks and hunted humans or made bargains with them. I can't remember all of what he said, but I've been googling it and can only find bits and traces. I remember him telling us about people made out of sand who would try to imitate humans, and a demon that haunted the Wellington Green Mall. As I said, it's pretty difficult to tell which parts had any inspiration that was genuine, because most of it was just bullshit. There were urban legends about Native American spirits that still haunted the land, dead slaves and other victims of Flanger who kept looking for revenge or solace or other stranger spirits that had less clear definitions. Jessica, the blonde who was hired by Dave to run our medication room, mentioned something about reading up on that stuff. She came from Hope Sound and got interested in missing persons reports when a girl in her high school went missing. A lot of people were contacted by a girl who went to school in Hope Sound and who had apparently spent her last moments trying to contact people for help. Jessica, the blonde who was hired by Dave to run our medication room, mentioned something about reading up on that stuff. She came from the Hope Sound and got interested in missing persons reports when a girl from her high school went missing. Apparently a lot of people were contacted by a girl who went to school in Hope Sound and who had apparently spent her last moments trying to contact someone to get help. They claimed that she was horribly wounded by something that came out of the sky and was afraid that it was hunting her. I'm still looking for any bits left on the internet about that. Her friends posted something on Facebook because they felt like the cops ignored what they had told them about the girl's last phone call, and they decided that she probably just ran away. Still, I had no idea which of these stories were based on truth, and even then I really doubted their accuracy. I mean, the people I hang around with can't even be expected to report the color of the sky accurately. Aside from the deaths, I wasn't sure that there was any truth to this stuff at all, but the thing I know for sure is that I'm definitely avoiding the Lake Worth area from now on. I found a hidden door in my cellar, and I think I've made a big mistake. My wife and I have lived in our house for about 5 years, and in that time we've probably been down into the cellar only a handful of times. Our home is an old Victorian terrace house, and so the cellar is cold and damp. When we first moved in, we kept wine and stuff down there, because my wife liked the idea of telling people that we had a wine cellar. But it got annoying going down there every time we needed something, so we stopped using it. Plus it's just the two of us living here, so we don't really need it for storage space. A few weeks ago we decided that we were going to renovate it, maybe turn it into a mini gym or something. So over the weekend we went down and started cleaning it up. The cellar has a stone floor, but the walls are covered in this horrible yellowing floral wallpaper. It looked old as hell, and I assumed that it was put up decades ago. So we started to strip the wallpaper. Mm And that's when we found the door. Covered up by wallpaper, the door was set into the wall. It was plain wood, and the door handle had been removed so that it was flat. We were pretty stumped at how we hadn't noticed this before, how it had blended so well into the rest of the wall. But at this point, I was pretty excited that we found a secret door, so I largely overlooked its oddness. All the houses on our street have cellars, so I assumed it must be an old doorway leading through to next door cellar. We decided that we go around our neighbors tomorrow morning and tell him about the doorway and suggest breaking it up or something. I mean, I didn't really feel comfortable about having this access point into our house. My wife tried to look through the small circle hole in the door where the handle had been removed, but it was pitch black in there. So, because we're nosy, we used the torch on her phone to peek through the hole. My wife looked first. She suddenly went still. This doesn't go into next door's cellar, she said slowly, moving away from the door. I frowned and took her phone, looking for myself. Instead of next door cellar, there were stone steps leading downward. I couldn't see very far with the light of the phone, so I brought down my big torch and managed to get the door open. We looked down the stairs. They weren't very long, and at the end of the stairway was another door. This one was very old. It even had one of those big metal ring handles. But the thing is, it didn't make sense how it could be there. Even though it went down, the beginning of the stairway would still cut into the neighbor's cellar. We'd been in his cellar for drinks a couple of times, which he had done up into this games room with a bar and a pool table, and I never noticed a big jut out from the wall that would cover a stairway, or that it was smaller than our cellar if there was a whole wall blocking it off. My wife thought we should probably talk to him before going down and left, but I was too curious about the whole thing. So I took the torch and I went down. I tried the handle, and it was a bit stiff, but I was completely taken by surprise that it opened. I shone the torch inside. It was a concrete room, similar to our cellar but smaller, and this was the only entrance or exit that I could see. I moved the light around and nearly jumped out of my skin. There was a man standing at the back wall, facing the wall with his back to me. He was completely still, wearing a black suit and a black-rimmed hat. The man was so still that I began to think that it was a mannequin, until he slowly lifted one foot. I stood transfixed with my light trained on him. It was just bright enough to illuminate his body, but the rest of the room was in complete darkness. He held his foot in the air before slowly moving it a step backward. His movements were unnatural and jerky, like somebody who didn't fully understand how to walk. He stayed like that for a moment, completely still with one foot placed back. Then he lifted his other foot in the same jerky movement. This time when he stepped back, his foot slammed on the floor. The sound shook me out of my frozen state and I jumped back. As soon as I moved, it was like I'd triggered something, as suddenly he began to move so quick. He was running backwards towards me, his legs jerking around unnaturally. Writing this down now, it sounds kind of funny, but at the time it was utterly terrifying. I've never seen someone move like that before. I instinctually threw the torch at him, maybe I thought that I could knock him out or something, I don't know, and I ran back up the stairs, slamming the door behind me, and running up the stairs leading out of the cellar, slamming that door shut too. I hesitated by the door, barricading it with my arm and trying to control my breath and understand what I had just seen. I heard the sound of the door push open in the cellar, and then what sounded like a huge lump of flesh dragging along the floor. I thought I began to hear what sounded like a low hissing noise, at which point I ran out of the house, yelling my wife's name. She was standing on the front porch of the neighbors, talking to him. I grabbed her and pulled her to the other side of the road, yelling for my neighbor to get away from the house. Without waiting to explain to them what I had seen, I grabbed my phone and called the police. We all stood there in the dark, my neighbor in his robe and slippers, looking at the house. After a few moments, I saw the lights that we'd left on flicker through our kitchen window, and then they went out completely. All I remember was holding my wife's hands so tightly and looking into our dark windows and waiting for the police to arrive. They found no one in the house, but the cellar door was open and so was our back door. They checked our garden, but found no one, and no footprints or signs that someone had been there. They brought a team over to check out the room that we had found. My neighbor claimed no knowledge of the room, and he too couldn't understand how the stairs in the room could even exist, how they could possibly fit between our two cellars. The police couldn't explain it any more than we could. I didn't want to ever go back in there, so they showed us photos of the walls inside the room. The concrete was carved with symbols and they found what looked like dried blood. They had the symbol sent to our local university's history department, but no one knew what they meant. So they sealed off the room, and we've never gone into the cellar again. I think we made a huge mistake that day when we opened the door and went into that room. I think we set something free, something that had been locked up for a reason, and I don't think it's good.